Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Veterans Care Association and Timor Awakening podcast. The Timor Awakening program is an 11-day immersive, holistic and peer-to-peer veterans program based in East Timor that has a singular vision, which is to promote the health and well-being of veterans and veterans' families. Due to the current restrictions from COVID-19, we are running slightly abridged programs on the Gold Coast uh, with the same vision and same aim. We're using these opportunities to sit down with our participants one-on-one and conduct podcast interviews to capture their story and their lessons learned and things that we can all learn from uh, as we as veterans and wounded healers move through our own journey and help others do the same. We're going to be covering a whole range of topics including defence transition, mental health, relationships, veteran suicide, PTSD and post-traumatic growth. Whether you're out and about or listening to this at home or driving in your car, we do trust that you'll learn a lot by listening to our participants. Thank you and enjoy. So friends, uh, welcome. And has everyone had a lovely day up at the farm today? Awesome. Uh, so we'll maybe reflect on that at circle time tonight. But uh, tonight, to, now we've got something really special. Um, we're going to do an interview with John. No and, pressure. Uh, you, <laughs> no pressure. But uh, so, yeah, really only just, I've only, we've only known John for a couple of weeks, but uh, uh, Jenny Walker, who leads this organization, you know, thought that John had some inspirational things to share with us from his, um, uh, from his life. Um, it anchors in his story in Vietnam, and uh, he, we've shared that story with you and, uh, and, because he, d- he didn't want to focus too much on that particular battle. Now, John was awarded a Distinguished Service Order just two or three years ago, was it? it was... Yeah. Yes, for, for something that happened like, <laughs> you know, like almost 60 years ago. And, and there's, another, <laughs> there's another story to that, but it actually shows like the patience and, you know, any, all of it a sudden. It was my brother who, who pursued it. So it was uh, like, I, I, you know, been in the army a long time and I've heard many stories of battle. I was not aware that like just the one battle that you shared and he said in many, like the most extraordinary story I've ever heard of Australians in combat in recent times. And, uh, but it's, it's probably what follows up on that is what we're really focused on today. Yeah. Uh, as Michael said last night, you know, we've been dealing with the low hanging fruit up until now, you know, exercise, nutrition and stuff. It's at, from, from this point forward, we're gonna sort of start looking at some of the things that really challenge us. And so, you know, this afternoon, we're going to be reflecting on, on a moral injury. We're gonna be reflecting on like death and dying, we're going to be reflecting on preventing suicide. And I, I just thought, again, as a symbolic uh, thing to know to do that, we, again, we're not going to be like, you know, remembering how everything is buggered up in life. What uh, I'll just put another little symbol up here is that we're going to be bringing light into the darkness, okay? So rather than, you know, with our whole concept of operations, it's all, all about, you know, no matter what has happened, we can make something good of it. Okay, so we're going to bring light into the darkness in, in our journey today. So we've uh, we designed a, a little interview type uh, segment. Um, I've got a few little questions here that I'm going to ask John, and then we'll open it up for general questions that you might have. But uh, again, we're you know you're a man of wisdom. We you know that the team <laughs> gathered with uh, John last Monday, <laughs> and, and like we were just like wide mouth frogs. Wow, this is. Uh, you know, I, I, you know, I'm 69 years old. I can't imagine I've got, you know, so much more to learn in life than uh, as, as we go along. So perhaps, John, if I can just start. Uh, well, firstly, thank you for coming and thank you for sharing. He's come here the whole week. Isn't that amazing? Oh, like, yeah. initially, that's, yeah. that's wonderful on short notice. John, you shared with us uh, how up to 50 of your men died in just one battle in your company. 50. Um, you understandably felt burdened by that. And you eventually got to speak to their families and they forgave you. And you were able to forgive yourself. 
Can you just talk to us about the importance of forgiveness in your life? Yeah, sure. And on top of that, I've been back to Vietnam twice. Uh, once with the Americans looking for fragments of bone of Americans who got left on a position who were dead. And I met the commander of the other force that overran my position. And he and I got on really, really well. And one of the things is we forgave one another. So there was another level of forgiveness. We forgave one another and we sat down and drank a bottle of whiskey, which I thought was a really good symbol of forgiveness. But um, there's forgiveness of others and forgiveness of yourself. And I think I've only just in the last few years forgiven myself. I went to Vietnam with SBS and they made a documentary. And my wife said to me, she was with me because I wasn't going to go by myself because I get a bit twitchy. And she said, there's something that's changed about you after the last interview on, on camera, where I just opened up and said, this is how I'm feeling about it all. And it was, it was she who brought to my attention that I had forgiven myself. And I'm, I'm aware of that now, and I can speak about it now, but two years ago, I wouldn't have known what she was talking about. And forgiveness is about accepting my own role in things, and quite often they're beyond my control, but I didn't forgive myself. So for example, and I'm sounding a bit muddled at the moment, so I'm sorting it out as we go along. Uh, when Gary says, you know, sort of 50 people were killed, that was just one batch of people that were killed. I had about 140, 150 people on this hill. We got overrun by a very, and they were sort of uh, militia, um, guerrillas, mercenaries. And we were overrun by a very professional unit called the Iron Brigade. You know it's going to be good when it's the Iron Brigade. Uh, from the 2nd NVA Division. And the 2nd NVA Division themselves were very tough boys. So... To be overrun by the Iron Brigade is almost like a badge of, of honour. i just wait for a sec. What was I forgiving? Well, for years I carried around this, this mental picture of a battle. If I'd done this, then I would have lost less men. If I'd done that, if I'd known about this, if I'd known about that. And it followed me wherever I went. And it was a feeling of guilt. And this was put down, I didn't, I wasn't uh, determined to have PTSD until I was about 60. So I carrying this stuff around for 30 years, feeling badly about myself. And the guilt wasn't only about that. And the guilt was also about, um, well, I'll give you the most dramatic moment as I speak. Uh, I had a son who was a helicopter pilot and he crashed and was killed. And I grieved for him, I really grieved. And I thought I had grieved in Vietnam because I'd lost a lot of people and a lot of friends. And I realized then later that that wasn't grief, that was great sadness, but it wasn't grief. But when I lost my son, I knew what grief was. So about two weeks after I'd buried him, I woke up about two o'clock in the morning 
wrought with, with guilt because I suddenly realized, this is some years after I'd been to Vietnam, I suddenly realized that here I am I grieving over my son. In one battle I was responsible probably for the deaths of 300 young men aged about 18. And I was the commander of one side, but because the Americans had the weaponry, the, the fighters and the gunships and whatever, the other poor bastards got massacred. And though we lost a lot, they lost a lot more. And so I woke up thinking, if that's how I'm feeling now, that's how the parents of every one of those soldiers, our side and the other side feel, have felt. And I'm carrying that on me. So that was real burden of guilt. There was also another aspect, which was the immorality of the war, where probably in the first two weeks I was writing home to my wife, and I said in the letter which she kept and showed me, which I've destroyed now because it caused me further guilt, was I may well be on the wrong side here. Now, if you think you might be on the wrong side, it creates an immense dilemma because you cannot afford any casualties whatsoever. If you kill the enemy, you feel guilty about it. And if your own people get killed, you get, feel guilty about it. And I was in the business of killing. And the better I was at my job, the more people that died. And so here I am having this dilemma about you know, doing a good job and, and being what I'm been paid to do, which is be a soldier, and being responsible in my own mind for the deaths of all these people. So there's all these layers of guilt upon me, and I'll talk later about how what I did to, to deal with it. But guilt is a significant part of it, and it, I went through, um, I went and saw a number of psychologists and psychiatrists, and it became a game for me. I sort of used to go along to them and uh, see how many sessions they lasted, because I reckon that I was smarter than half of them. And, and, uh, and so, yeah, I just play games with them. And then in the end, say, I won't be coming back, and they get all hurt. Um, lost it there for a moment. The guilt. Uh, eventually, I, I came into a room with a, an 82-year-old psychiatrist who was used to dealing with World War II veterans. And he nailed me <laughs> within the first half hour, had me thoroughly nailed. Uh, I cried for about two hours, which I hadn't ever done before. And he cancelled his, his uh, appointments that afternoon and, and we just had this session together where I thought, bloody hell, well, if this is the first step, it's really painful, but I'll do it anyway. But the guilt from what I thought was guilt from PTSD was not that at all. It was many years later than I realised that being aware of PTSD and trying to deal with it wasn't dealing with my emotions. I was still really, really upset and becoming more and more low to the point of suicide where I wanted to kill myself but didn't want to do it in a way that would upset other people that I loved. So how do you kill yourself? 
without upsetting your family. And it's not impossible, I suppose, but it's certainly difficult. And uh, so I went into that area, and I'll talk later, if you wish, about what to do, what I did about suicide, which worked. But I've been right in the bottom of the pit, the bottom of the well. And I either had, I had to make a decision, and I'm a fairly strong-minded person. Am I going to get out of this? Or am I just going to succumb to it? And there are a number of reasons I decided to get out of it because I realised there were several hundred people who were dead who would gladly have swapped places with me and would be here and enjoying the life that I'm enjoying. And uh, I'm disregarding that and saying my life isn't worth it. Uh, and I found it was just such hard work. Uh, the, the wonderful thing about this is that you really feel you've accomplished something because it was so, excuse the language, so fucking hard to get out of a hole and stay out. It is easy, easy to get back into it. Being depressed and being alone and all that thing is easy. All you do is shut the door on the world and um, go your own way and eventually, you know, sort of drink yourself to death or do drugs or whatever. So that's a long way around talking about, we haven't got onto it yet, but uh, the other aspect of it is, is the immorality or the morality of being a soldier. And I think one of the things that's carried me through is that I was, just, I was an honourable soldier. After a, a particular battle when the enemy normally take all their dead and wounded their bodies with them, um, they left behind 30 bodies and I saw two people lying in, in the dirt and they had white bandages on them. They'd obviously been bandaged up and I realised they were, they were North Vietnamese, uh, who was the other side, and, um, and I, I don't call them the enemy because they were never my enemy. Uh, they were people unfortunately I had to come into combat with. But they were North Vietnamese and they'd been forgotten or missed in the pickup. And I thought, if I put them in a chopper, and it's a Vietnamese chopper, they'll probably get thrown out on the way. So, and this was up in the, up around the north, you know, it's North Vietnam, we were right up in the um, uh, tiger country there. Up, up there, the, the enemy moved around in divisions of 8,000 men. You know, it was, they were big forces as opposed to, uh, the Viet Cong who would operate in groups of you know, 10 or 20 or something like that. So uh, I thought I, I can't handle this anymore. Well, I can handle it, but I'm not going to. So I got, a, got the nearest thing to a white flag, which is a dirty handkerchief, tied it to a stick and started waving it so I could wave the flag, but they couldn't see me. And then slowly <laughs> ease my way up got my chest above me, if I get shot now, it's going to be in the head and chest, which is a soldier's dream. If you're going to get shot, get shot in the head or the chest because uh, it doesn't help to get shot in the gut. It takes too long to die. So I waved this flag and this, this, all the shooting died down and I walked out in front and the enemy were about 50 metres away. We'd pushed them off a hill and, and they were holding. And I'm looking at these two guys who are looking at me through their sights and I think, oh, Gee, I hope they're well disciplined. Yeah. <laughs> I just don't want to get shot now. 
and they didn't shoot. And then I had my men bring these two guys out on on uh, on body bags, actually, so you could hold the corners on like a stretcher. And my people went back. They came out of the bush and picked these guys up, and then they went back. And then I went back, and we all started shooting each other again. <laughs> and I thought, I have done something honourable, something that you know, really needed to be done. At the same time, when I met the enemy commander, the first time I met him, we were both very nervous. It was in Da Nang, and uh, all the, the heavies were there. It was to get the... Uh, what was supposed to be the MIAs, missing in action. There's a whole industry about, you know, we know where they're being kept in bamboo cages, give us a million dollars and we'll do a raid and save them all sort of thing. And there was something like 200 American bodies still unaccounted for. And so uh, I was in, because in my battle, one of my battles, I left 11 US Marine bodies behind because I didn't have enough helicopter capacity to get them in, as well as the wounded Chinese, who were my soldiers, they were Chinese. And this is all very confusing, I know. Um, but they were Chinese mercenaries. And you know, I wanted to get the, the wounded out. And the, the Marines were saying in no uncertain terms, you know, dead Marines have got priority over uh, Chinese mercenaries. And we had a, a serious discussion and I said, well, there's about 30 of you and there's about 100 of, the, of mine. So, you know, sort out whether you want to stay here or whether you want to go home. And we got that sorted out. But the... Um, sorry, I've, I went on a digression there. Uh, oh, yeah. Every time the dust-off, the, the medevac helicopters came in, the shooting died down. And I started to realise there's a bit of a pattern going on here. That this helicopter, had already had two helicopters shot down and they'd blocked the, the LZ so no more choppers could get in. So this helicopter came in sideways and we literally, it was about the height of that sofa above the ground and we're literally throwing these people in with incredible wounds getting thrown in. And then the chopper would peel off and then all the shooting would start again mortars and rockets and whatever. When I met the enemy commander, and he was introduced to this group, there was about 10 of us there, they said, uh, you yeah, know, we introduced ourselves. I said, I was the commander of the people in the position. They said, yeah, we know that. And then they started saying, this is General Zhu, who was the uh, NVA commander for the whole of the Central Islands. This is General, yeah, all these generals. And here, this is uh, Colonel Mai. He was in charge of the force that overran your position. And I said, excuse me, I said to the interpreter, so I, I, I may have missed, could, could you run through that again? And here's my, takes a glass of water and goes gulp, and he doesn't know what's going to happen. And uh, so he told me again, and I stood up and I reached across the table to shake his hand and I said, you in my mind are the most honorable soldier I have ever met. Is it true that you prevented your troops from shooting on the on the helicopter? He said, my troops never shot on a Red Cross helicopter, ever. And I said, you are an honourable man. So he and I got on well. That's why we drank a bottle of whiskey. Mm -hmm. He and I got on really well. 
because there was honour and there was honour on my part and we were both doing a job. We, the next day we went up on the hill and walked around and he did this and I did that and, and at one stage he said, I was in here and I had an American lieutenant with one foot who had said, that was, that was my hole. Uh, and he got blown out with a, with a satchel charge and Mai had taken over his pit. And I said, I was over here, literally about this far away, about 15 metres. He said, I know, we were trying to get you. <laughs> and I said, oh, really? Because I'd had a guy with a machine gun over there hosing down my, my uh, sandbags. Every time someone got on the sandbags, they had to get, get shot off. And he said, yeah, we were trying to get you. And I said, oh, I'm so glad you didn't. <laughs> Anyway, I got him because when it was all over, we had these two big houses, you know, guns, and we had seven rounds, seven or nine, I forget which, and the, the US artillery came up to me and said, we've got seven rounds left, what do we do with them? And I said, oh, we're going to fire them. And he said, where? And I said, oh, I don't know, if I was the enemy commander, I'd probably be, and I pointed to something about two or three hundred metres away, probably standing in that area wondering what I'm going to do next fire him over there. And I got him. <laughs> he got shrapnel his arm had to be taken off the battlefield. So, uh, all right, I'll stop there. I'm saying to ramble on, but give me some direct questions. Okay, okay. So, well, actually, do you want, do you want to just expand on that a little bit more with the, how, how you eventually dealt with the guilt? Like you mentioned that you, right. there was that particular psychiatrist who was able to open that up a little bit for you? Or? Yes, he did. Yeah. Um, so there were two batches of guilt. This is sort of, latter years, this is right at the beginning, this is sort of 10 years ago, two batches of guilt. One was I could have done a better job. Well, the reality is I couldn't have. With the training that I'd had, with the capacity that I had, I did an outstanding job and I recognise that now because I was, uh, all the other officers, American and, and uh, American, had been killed or wounded. So I was running this show single-handed. I was calling in the airstrikes, calling in trying to land reinforcements, which couldn't happen. They got shot down. Uh, getting the wounded out, um, getting everyone sort of fill up their water bottles because I had no idea what we were going to do, how we were going to get the hell out of there. But yeah, so we fully go around the, the dead and wounded and get their ammunition and all, all that stuff, you know, a whole lot of administrative stuff which was necessary, which was also time consuming, which I would have liked to hand it over to somebody else, but there was nobody else. The most senior American was a, a PFC, a you know, private, a, a corporal, and he was good at firing his guns, but you know, wasn't, wasn't really into siege warfare. So um, there was that batch of guilt. I could have done more. There was also the what became the predominant guilt, and it's not about PTSD, it's about morality. I realised before I left there was something immoral about the war because you were either conscripted or you went to jail. I mean, if that's defending your nation, I don't know what the hell uh, was going on because if you burnt your draft card, and said, I don't want to, they're not my enemy, I don't want to fight them. Then you were arrested and you did a term in jail. 
And that was immoral. And then when I got over there, I found that the people I served with, who were fantastic soldiers, this is the, uh, the, the seals of the time, the Green Berets. And I was a company commander in the Green Berets. And they were fantastic soldiers, but absolutely immoral. I mean, the, 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 the mess, everyone's used the same mess, um, was you know, sort of a, a part-time brothel. They dealt with, uh, with the Marines who weren't allowed booze, and they um, had truckloads of booze going over to the Marines in return for all sorts of contraband. And I'm thinking, what the hell's going on here? You know, so sort of, uh, here I am, sort of Mr. Innocent, never seen this life before. And um, I realised later it wasn't terribly far from the life they led before they got there. So, uh, And once they went in the field, they were great. But I'm thinking, this isn't right. And I wasn't being prudish and prissy. It just wasn't right. <coughs> and I had a, a really wonderful wind vane to give me the directions on morality because <clears throat> my father, who was a, a rogue and a wonderful person, said if you're ever considering whether something is right or wrong, you only have to ask one question, is this the right thing to do? You'll know immediately what to do. So what is the right thing to do here? So I'm sitting there thinking, this isn't right. Am I going to be able to change the American military? No. Well, what am I going to do? Well, I'll do my best. And so um, <coughs> I had a couple of other Australians with me. They were warrant officers. And I'm pretty sure they were sent, because I was a brand new captain, not brand new captain, I was a captain, but you know, brand new to warfare sort of thing. And I think they sent these two warrant officers along with me to make sure I didn't stuff up too much. Uh, and they did. They'd walk along behind me and say, no, no, Skipper, don't do that, no, no. On the other hand, <laughs> you know, I'd back off. So the immorality was the other batch, which I'm still not over because I look at Afghanistan and what's happening there. And that's immoral. That is absolute blatant, breaking your word, breaking, breaking every promise and every responsibility you have by just abandoning your country and saying, we're out here, we've done our time. So that makes me reflect on the immorality of what I was doing. But I have overcome that and uh, I can talk about that later. Back to you. Sure. So let's talk, can we talk about that now? Because mm -hmm. you, you, you said to me that you actually came to a point of accept, acceptance. Like there, there is a, like a, a therapy called acceptance therapy, you know. So you came to a point of acceptance and you realised that you had done your best, that you had behaved honourably, was that how you dealt with this, what we would call moral injury? Was that how you... That's how I dealt with it over there. Yeah. But in coming back, I still was carrying, you know, as I heard you say the other day, you can come home from the war and bring the war with you. Mm. That was so true. Um, so I, I came back and I, I, I realised I'd helped stuff up a country. I mean, there's, the Vietnamese are a gentle, loving people. And left on their own, there would not have there would have been a civil war, but it wouldn't have been too bad because the one side would have said, "Okay, you win. Let's go back to the shops." Um, so they're very gentle people, and it was us who who forced them into killing each other. And I think the the number of times you heard the Americans say, "Oh, the Vietnamese, they're no good as soldiers," 
what they're really saying is they don't kill each other as fast as we could. And that is really, really immoral. And the other immorality is you've got people my age at the time who say, let's go to war. You know, Ho Chi Minh, who's a fabulous leader, but a, uh, a warmonger, and General Giap and those guys. And over here you've got Bob Menzies and incredible intellectuals like that. And what they do is they recruit young men and they train them up and they tell them who the enemy is and what we're going to do about it and push them closer and closer together until they're facing each other, as in my case. And in facing each other, they are told, well, you better kill the other guy because he's going to kill you. So then you've got, there you've got 18-year-old men, which is normally the cream of that society because the Army, Navy, Air Force love to take the cream, train them up, make them enthusiastic and send them out where they're going to be in dire peril. And if that's not immoral, I don't know what is. So Australia's done some good things. And I think Timor is a really good thing. I think Australia getting involved there was just so right. And getting involved in Iraq was about a wheat deal with America. Getting involved in Iran was about, you know, sort of seeking out allies in case China got too, too powerful, which they're now doing, and we don't have the ally. So we've got all these different immoralities occurring, and you've got to figure out how you're going to deal with it. Well, my answer was, I will take something and do something about it. So I got involved with the Vietnamese refugees. And uh, I'm a, a reasonably astute businessman. And I could see where you only had to drive through lower socioeconomic um, uh, suburbs. And you see a you know, car wreck and a bit of this and a bit of that. And then a, an impeccable garden with a vegetable garden down the back. And you just say, Vietnamese. And you know, they, they were great gardeners. So I set up a number of businesses for corporations who've got you know, sort of a, a plant with, plant as in a mill, with gardens and lawns around the outside. And I would approach them and say, look, there's nothing in this for me, but I'm looking to, for contracts to do gardens. And they say, all right, mate, we'll give you, give you a must trial. And they're still working there mm -hmm. 20 years later. So I got involved with that and then I ended up being very good friends to the point that they've adopted me uh, with a couple of Vietnamese families. And I found out later that when the Cambodians started arriving, uh, there's a bit of a wave of Cambodians, these Vietnamese all got together to help the Cambodians settle in. And I thought, you know, that's a sort of a pass it forward type thing. But I felt I'd done something to get back at, at the at the, um, the immorality of us encouraging uh, other people to fight. And when I eventually got out of the army, I went from Vietnam to, uh, I was an adventurer. I just wanted to do things that were different. I was talking to, to Tina last night and she's the same. Um, I wanted to go to Vietnam because I'd been trained to, and I wanted to go with the training team, which is the mob I was with, because they did adventurous things. 
And I didn't realize how adventurous till I was in the middle of it and saying, I was looking for adventure, but gee, this is a bit much. <laughs> but they did adventurous things. And then from there, I, was, I, um, I went to Malacca in Malaysia. And from there, I went to Singapore. And from there, I went to um, New Guinea at a posting I've been looking forward to doing. And I took advantage. I was highly manipulative. I knew I was a popular guy at the moment because the people in the Australian Army knew what I'd done. And so I wrote to the Army headquarters and said, I'll be leaving Vietnam in six months and you're probably wondering what to do with me. I'd really like to be the G3, at, uh, the Gurkha division at Torenda Barracks in Malacca. And they wrote back and said, we tell you where to go, fella. You don't tell us. Do not write to us like this again. And then they gave me the job. <laughs> So when I was leaving that, I wrote to him again saying, you know, that we're shutting down Malacca. I'd really like to stay with the Commonwealth Brigade and go to Singapore. And they said, we've looked at your file. This is, this is outrageous. Um, and there'll be sort of a note made on your file that you're, you're misbehaving. And they gave me the job. <laughs> and they, yeah, they put someone there probably said, oh, hell, if he wants to give it to me. And then this, it's hard to believe, but... Now, when I was in, in Singapore, I wanted to go to New Guinea because that's where, you know, there was adventures. And there was, you know, the Indonesians coming over the border, but there's no shooting going on. So I wrote to them once more, and I got this filthy letter back saying, you know, you may well be considered to be undisciplined, etc., etc. And they gave me the job. <laughs> and I thought, this is ridiculous. So the next time I wrote to them was, I want to get out of the army. <laughs> And I thought they'd at least fly up the head of the army to try to talk me out of it and whatever. And they wrote back and said, OK. <laughs> <laughs> so I got out. But um, the reason I got out was that there's, there's the military, like you know, the battalions and the, the navy and things, you see it all happening. But there's a subset of the military, which is... Um, sort of a subset below SAS, which SAS do sneaky peat jobs. These are the people who do sneaky, sneaky peat jobs. And I was invited to uh, leave the Australian Army and be seconded, either leave totally or just take leave of absence, be seconded to an American unit I had done some work with, whom I didn't approve of, to go to Northern Thailand and to work with the... Uh, Hmong and Rade tribes, whom I had done a lot of work with. Um, I'd use them as mercenaries in central Vietnam. And to work with them in a rebellion against the Laotian government, which was communist. And I'd seen this happen before, what the Americans did. Now, I'm not anti-American, I'm anti-American foreign policy. But what the Americans had done was they would go in and they'd, they'd get these tribal minorities who were, what's the word, anti the government, you know, a bit like the Irish, didn't matter who's the government, you don't like them, and anti the government, and so arm them and train them up and then have them do a rebellion, and that would distract some of the communist forces away from the, from the other fields where they're employed. And what ended up happening is the tribes got massacred. They just, the North Vietnamese had come in, swept through, um, shoot all the men, burn the huts, and away you go. 
And I said, no, yeah, I, I, I have found immorality wherever I go, but this is over the top. I don't want it, I'm not going to go. And so my brother, who was a colonel in the army at the time, flew up and said, uh, and obviously this is, they spoke to him and said, yeah, go and talk to your brother. And um, he came up and said, what's this all about? And I said, Peter, it's just immoral, I'm not going. He said, if you're in the army, you go where you're sent. You can't have an army full of people saying, gee, I don't like this one, I won't go, but I'll go to that one sort of thing. And he's quite right. And I said, well, if I can't do that, then I'm in the wrong place. And I left and uh, started a, uh, a new life, or tried to. And that's a whole other story, you know, getting out and, and the, the difficulties of becoming a civilian when you've been... I started off at boarding school at the age of six, left the boarding school today, go to Duntroon, and left that to go into a male-only officer's mess. So you know, I was hardly ready for a civilian life where um, I didn't really have a clue what was going on. Mm. So perhaps if I could sum that up in answer to that question. I wish I gave you would, you. yeah. <laughs> That's you. That, uh, it, it sounded, firstly, it sounded to me like the, the way you dealt with that is that you realised that you were an honourable person, yes. that you did have values, and you consisted... Uh, you consistently lived out those values, yeah. and, and so that gave you some solace. Um, the other fascinating thing you didn't share with us last week was that you, you got into restorative action. Like you, you helped out those Vietnamese, you helped out the Cambodians, which is something similar to what we're doing here. And, uh, and I think that, like that, that is absolutely one of the ways that we can deal, you know, with the, we, you know, we can talk about restorative justice, that you, are, you had a passion for just action which well, is, the Vietnamese, uh, yeah, this helped a number of Cambodian families, but this one was a... I just had to swallow them because it was such a tough story, but a good one. That a Vietnamese fellow called M. Tran, who is, who is like a, a cousin to me, came over and said, yeah, can you, can you help this family? So I went over to see them. They'd been allocated a house. They had no furniture, no nothing. She was about 15 months pregnant, and she was due to have a baby any moment. They had no cot, no cot, no nothing, and no money. And so I um, just got on the phone and rang around everyone I knew and said, uh, congratulations, Fred, you're going to buy a cot and give it to a Cambodian. And he says, what? <laughs> I said, you're going to buy a cot and give it to a Cambodian. Do you want the backstory? You're just going to do it. He says, I'll do it, but yeah, I'd really like to know. And so through coercion and blackmail and <laughs> uh, guilt and everything else, we got the whole house finished. And she had the baby about two weeks later and she was able to bring it back. And I was able to get the various government resources who were available to come and visit her and so on. And I walked away from that and I cried for about two days uh, because I felt I had alleviated some of the negative aspects that I had created in my life. Mm. Excellent. Mm. Thank you. It answers the question. You, you said, he said something to you the other day I couldn't understand. You said that you didn't want closure about Vietnam because a lot of, a lot of us, you know, when we've been traumatised by something, we just want to shut it down and walk away with it and do nothing about it. And, and I understand now what, what, you were, what you were saying there, that you... You, you accepted that you'd been involved in this. Can I expand then, on that? Yeah, sure. Yeah. yeah. 
for years I heard people saying, you know, uh, they want closure. And I know I may well be going against what some people believe or say or think here. But I don't want closure. I don't want closure of important parts of my life. And closure would mean it's dealt with, I move on. I don't want to move on from my memories, and the really good memories, of people that I've known who've been killed, but I'm glad I knew them, of things that I've done, but in particular about people. And I want to remember them, but I want to remember them positively. So they say that the human mind is extraordinary and uh, one of the things we can do is, is um, put things in boxes and our memories in boxes in our minds. And men, men are meant to be better at compartmentalizing their brain than women. And that's not a sexist statement, it's just that we, we probably can't handle as much at the same time as a woman emotionally. So I've developed this room where I keep all these film strips. I've, it's just over here somewhere. I've got all these film strips and they stay there. So if someone mentions something, I'm not impacted by a whole lot of, gee, you know, I remember you know, and all these muddled and one image over another. And uh, if I choose to, I choose the film strip I want. So if someone says, uh, mentions a fellow called Greg Rose, who was a Marine, who's been following me ever since then, wherever I've gone to live in. So I came back to live in Australia and he moved to Australia and he married an Australian. He's on his fifth wedding. Uh, I was the best man. And <laughs> I said to him, I had to make a speech and I said, if you think, this is a very formal thing, if you think Greg's fucked up, you are absolutely right. And Greg, <laughs> I'm telling you, this is the last time I'm going to be your best man. <laughs> what you need to do, the next time you want to marry someone, this is at his wedding, Next time you want to marry someone, just give her a house and $100,000 and move on. <laughs> and, and his wife thought this was ter terribly funny. Anyway, um, where did that come from? Oh, yeah, so here's a film. So here's Greg. I've got this, this film of, of Greg who now lives at Port Macquarie. And when I see him, instead of thinking about Marines and everyone being killed and all this sort of thing, I pull out this film clip. And the one I've got of him is he, when the Marines arrived, I didn't want them, I asked them to go home because the moment the Marines arrived, a, a bigger enemy force is going to come on you. And there's only 40 of them, for goodness sake, that's not going to win a war. And uh, when the Marines arrived, the uh, Marine Lieutenant sent Greg Rose up to find the Australian who was in charge because they weren't put under my command, they just arrived, they were there. And I had no idea what was going on. Somebody had a brilliant idea back in Danang. And um, he came up and he stood to attention. He was in full battle dress, a steel helmet and everything, which I hadn't seen one for months. And he's there and he salutes me and says, I'm looking for, oh, no, sorry, he came up and he said, I was digging my own pit. And Marines don't dig, Marine officers don't dig their own pits. Uh, it's a court martial offence they have to have a soldier dig the pit. And I said to him, who digs the soldier's pit? And he said, oh, that's their business. Anyway, I was digging my pit and he came up and he said, oh, yeah, buddy, uh, I'm looking, where, where can I find a Captain White? And I said, oh, that's me. And he snapped to attention and he saluted 
And I said, don't salute me, you stupid bastard. Do you want a sniper to get me? <laughs> <laughs> he said, no, 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 no. So he said, uh, Lieutenant so-and-so sends his regard. I said, I'll just tell him to come up here, will you? And so I was on the hill. And he said, I said, that, that's it. Go, and go off and tell him. He, he snapped me another salute. <laughs> and I said, you Marines are really thick. He said, well, what have I done? I said, I asked you not to. Oh, yeah, that's right. Okay. <laughs> So whenever I see Greg, we, we go through this uh, for charade. But I've got a strip of that, you see. And I can remember that. I can remember that. Here we are laughing. And this is in a, in a position where 11 of his mates were killed out of 44. 11 were killed, about 15 seriously wounded, and about another 10 who walked out with me when we escaped. So that's, that's how I deal with it. I, I, they talk about Nungs. I've got a couple of clips up here of Nungs, which are very amusing ones, which are, you know, I pull down if I need to. But I don't let the whole lot, and, and this is, I've spoken to other people about this, other Vietnam guys, I don't let it all crowd me. It's not one big package where I'm immersed in it, you know, like getting into a... a a rubber ball and closing the hood or something, where I can't get out. I can get out. I can come in and out if I want to. I can come out now and talk with you and sleep well tonight because I will put this as a positive experience on a film clip with audio and, <laughs> and hang it up here in my little uh, dark room and make it a positive experience. Yeah. So that's, that's how I do that. Thank you, John. Thank you. I've just got one last question for you and then we can open up to any general questions. Um, when you came back to Australia, you told us you are a little bit difficult to get on with with folks and uh, you had some issues. That's a bit, a bit of an understatement. <laughs> you, had, you had some issues. You put on a facade. You struggled to relate. You moved out on a farm for 10 years. Um, finally, you, were, you, you went through one marriage. You went through a second marriage. And then you amazingly told us you remarried your second wife. That's right. And I met, her, I met her here the other day after you left your clothes yeah. back in Brisbane and she graciously came down here with you. I so know. can you tell us the positive end of that? How, how was it that you, you turned that relationship thing around and uh, got into a happy, stable relationship? Well, I, I uh, at the risk of being personal, and I told this the other day, but I uh, had a couple of uh, partners in between and, and one of them said to me, I was, I was on the verge of asking her would she marry me and she must have seen this coming because she was ducking and weaving. And uh, in the end she said, and this is, this is a great positive statement, you are the best lover I have ever had. I wouldn't marry you for quids. You'd make a terrible husband. And I said, I said you're probably right. Okay, and I picked up my bag and left. Mm -hmm. And <laughs> we have a cup of coffee every now and then, and she's happily married. So, uh, with my other wives, they, both wives have been absolutely delightful, and we've loved each other, and they've been really, really nice people. I am a really nice person, and up to the age of 26, when all, I went through all this stuff, I was a fun-loving, enjoyable, person to be with. When I came back, I was isolated, not by other people. People tried. I had people keep wanting to make contact with me, but I just 
isolated myself. I didn't allow anyone to get close to me for two reasons. One is, I didn't like myself. I didn't love myself enough to say, I've done some things which were not war crimes, which were not uh, antisocial, whatever. They were just the, the business I was in, and I did it, and I did it well. Unfortunately, it was immoral in my mind, and also to the nation. So, you know, it was reinforced by, by uh, street scenes and things like that. So the thing that, that happened was that my wives and I still loved each other. And my first wife was a, a really remarkable young, you know, we, we became lovers at 18 and married at 22 and uh, divorced, you know, probably 15 years after that, but split up after about 10 years. My second wife um, was a remarkable woman and she never gave up loving me. I sort of, I, I know this and we've discussed it with her and I, I avoid talking about it. But I did everything I could to get her to leave me, which would reinforce to me that I wasn't a nice person. Mm -hmm. And I would be very difficult. And she would tell me I'm being difficult. But in the end, it just got too much for her. And that was when we had a couple of kids and I was being difficult around the children as well. And she's a pretty tough chook, this wife of mine. And she said, okay, here's the deal. You're upsetting the kids when you, because I lived on a farm and I used to often, you know, sort of spend a, um, a, a night or go down and visit the day. And I had a bedroom downstairs where I was locked up at night. And um, she said, you've got to have some help. If we're going to get through anything here, if we're ever going to get back together, you've got to do something about yourself, which I hadn't. You know, I'd had these games with psychiatrists. And so an army fellow who um, was also screwed up, he was ex-SAS, and he'd been involved in a lot of rubbish. Not rubbish, a lot of ten, you know, tense situations. And he told me about this psychiatrist who I went and saw. And I thought, I'll go along and see him, and he'll say, no, you're okay. And then I can go back to my wife and say, everybody said I'm okay, so you know, what, you've got a problem. It's your problem, not mine. And he looked at me and he kept me there, as I said, for some time. And, and um, he said, you know, you, you've, you've really, really got problems and I feel sorry for your family. And the moment he mentioned family, I had to move in another direction because a friend of mine who has also gone through this stuff, and this is, this is important for people in this room now, some of you, I had to question my legacy. When I die, and this is the way it was put, when I die, how are you going to be remembered? Are you going to be remembered as that cranky, cantankerous hermit who lives on a farm who doesn't want even his own children to be near him? Or how do you want to be remembered? And I said, I want to be remembered as a fun, loving, funny, generous, kind person. That's how I want to be remembered. He said, well, you haven't got a chance. <laughs> and he said, yeah, there's no way in the world anyone's going to remember you as that. And so what has happened is that got me to change because I've got seven grandkids and more coming. And I do want to, I, I sort of, 
happy for the kids to have more kids, but I just got to hang around long enough to enjoy them. And I'm in that age bracket, and I don't mean to sound dramatic, but I'm 80 years old, and most people of my generation died about 82, 83. So, Colin, you're not looking too well today, either. He just lived to 100, I think, Colin. <laughs> so, 82, 83. So, you know, I've got to get a, got to get a move on here <laughs> if I'm going to change my legacy. So, some of you got a, a, a clip from the National Vietnam War Museum, or whatever it's called, about, about that, the battle we talked about earlier. And there's no way in the world I would have allowed that. Uh, and, and sort of uh, supported it until I got onto this legacy issue because I've never discussed with my children or anyone other than my wives the detail that, you know, that I'm sharing with you. I just haven't discussed it and the psychiatrist. Not because it's secret, but because I don't want to be remembered for this. I don't want to be remembered as a soldier who went to war and got involved with a lot of killing. Now, I know that that was part of the deal when I joined the army, but I don't want that to be my legacy. I want my legacy to be my grandfather or, you know, people like yourself, uh, sort of saying, oh, he's a funny bugger, but he put his mind to it. And I do enjoy humour, and sometimes it's totally misplaced. I mean, it, it's humour that you can use around people who've been in the military, exposed to military. But not long ago, I was going to a funeral, and it was an ex-soldier. And what had happened is about a week beforehand, we'd been waiting for him. And there was a, his wife and uh, some war widows and some other training team people. And someone rang up and said, John won't be there. He died of a heart attack last night. And I said straight away, well, just like John, he never planned ahead. <laughs> and see, all, everyone else found that funny. And the, the women, they were going, that's just so rude, John. I don't think I'll ever speak to me again. <laughs> and in, in one sense, it was rude. But it was internal humour between John and myself. Mm. And he also, he owed me a bottle of red. <laughs> <laughs> I was about to say, and he hasn't paid his debts. And I thought, oh, I better leave that one alone. So part of, it, part of dealing with, with all this mucky stuff is humour. And if I hadn't had humour and made that part of my life, I don't think I'd be here because it got me through a whole number of issues. And whenever I come up with soldiers I've served with, they always remember me for being having the one-liner, being the smart-ass. You know, I, I never charged a soldier in my life, but I used to sort of give them a bit of a, a sorting out and then leave it with a joke. And I think the, the best joke I've ever cracked, which I don't remember doing it, is when some Special Forces guys and I were about to get into a helicopter. We were getting picked up by a chopper in some remote part, and we were being chased by baddies. And we had two chopper loads, and this guy was sitting there, and he was a Special Forces medic, and he was the best, due respect to the medics here, best medic I ever met. And... He had just come in from an operation to Da Nang the night before, collapsed on his bed to go to sleep. My medics, both medics, are being killed. So he was told to get in the chopper and go out to my position and stay with another medic and start 
you know, helping. Anyway, he'd got up, his clothes were filthy, so he had a shower, so he put on somebody else's camouflage uniforms. And they were much too small for him. And during the day when he was squatting down with the wounded and whatever, his pants split from the ankle right up to the belt. And he didn't have any underpants on. <laughs> and he was sitting there leaning against a tree, flashing. And he said, oh, Skipper, you know, which, which chopper am I on? And apparently I said to him, well, I don't want the last thing I see in this world to be your dick. You're on the first one out. <laughs> well, apparently this went around. And, and I don't even remember saying it, but it was, yeah. So it's lines like that, which allow you to deal with the situation and then allow you to get, so I put that one on a strip up here. So helicopter evacuation. This is, this is a good one to do. What's next? Thanks very much. Well, now, I, that, that, you've answered more than I could even ask for. But anyone, like, we, this is only the beginning, really, isn't it? We've got a, another a whole week of experiences with John and even beyond that. Does anyone from the floor would like to ask a question in the general forum? And, uh... The other day you mentioned about when you come home, because in those days it was no welcome. Um, your wife put on a party. Oh, yeah. This is a sad story, um, but very real. It gives you some idea of, of what it was like. You would be aware that, that Vietnam was a very unpopular war, and there were a lot of street demonstrations and things like that. And though tactically it doesn't affect you when you're you know, 2,000 kilometres away and in the jungle, it's coming back, you come back to that, that environment. So I was limiting, when I came back from Vietnam, I was meant to have a month there, another six weeks, you know, six weeks all up to pack up and, and shift off to Malacca. And I elected for two weeks, and that's just to see family and then get out. My wife, who was a darling, thought, okay, John's coming home. Unselfishly, I will dedicate, I think, the second or third night to a party for him. And so she invited a whole lot of, and I had a lot of civilian friends. We were in Sydney, I was living in Sydney. And so most of my friends were people who enjoyed humour and fun and, you know, sort of uh, a bit, what's the word? Almost hippie-ish, some of them, yeah. So, um, compared with me, anyway. Uh, so that, that evening, these people are probably about 30 people. And I'd been home two days, three days, and I sort of found myself standing further and further back in the corner, and people came up, John, good to have you back. Uh, where, where you been? And yeah, that's right. Okay, Vietnam. Yeah, what was it like? And you say, it was fine, because you know very well if you say anything more than that, their eyes are going to glaze over, and they say, how do you spell mercenary or something like that? Because it wasn't fine, but you can't explain it. And, and I found that even with people that I wanted to understand what, a, what I was going through, not what I had gone through, but what I was going through, even if I tried to explain to people that I loved, like my mother, she would you know, say something like, endearing like, well, that's nice, darling. Would you, would you like me to make a special dinner for you? And I'm thinking it hasn't, hasn't landed. Yeah, it's still out there. So these people came in and I was getting more and more out and they were getting drunk and as they're meant to do. And uh, coming up and slapping me on the back and 
And uh, one fellow walked up, he was a, a really lovely guy, young lawyer, uh, smart, and I, he always enjoyed his company. And he said, oh, John, I hear you've been working with the chinks. And I didn't know what to do, and I said, chinks? Yeah, chinks. I said, you mean Chinese? He said, yeah, chinks. I said, these Chinese were probably twice as good a person as you have ever been, and I really don't want you in my house anymore. Please leave. And then I changed my mind. I said, can I have everyone's attention, please, for a moment? They thought I was going to make a speech, and I did. I said, I'd like everyone to leave. And they all stood there and looked at me, and my wife was saying, darling, you are right? Yeah, no, no. I said, no, I, don't, I wouldn't like everyone to leave. I'm telling you now. Everyone will leave now. Put down your glasses and just get out of my house. I don't think I've seen any of those people since. <laughs> and, I, and I understand that. It must have been the rudest thing I've ever had. But that's how tight it was. You know, there's, here I was with everything at my feet. I'm home. I'm with my gorgeous wife. I have a child. Uh, my civilian friends come in. We're going to celebrate. And all I'd want to do is just be alone. And um, that was the beginning of total puzzlement from my, from my wife. She never understood. I knew my, my marriage was over about 10 years later when I was carrying on about something. I was never physically violent. Um, I was unpredictable with my moods. And I said something about uh, Vietnam. She said, I'm sick to death of hearing about Vietnam. I don't want to hear about it again. And she never did. I never raised it with her again. But I just thought, if I can't talk to her, who the hell can I talk to? Which was unfair for her, because there was any number of people I could talk to. I just chose not to talk to them. And I, all I wanted was a world with me, her, children, that's it. So staying in the army for a couple of years was good, because I had my adventures and I traveled around Asia or whatever. But Sooner or later I had to get out and that thing with the Hmong tribesmen was the thing that uh, was the breaking point. But I needed to do something, I knew I needed to do something, but I had no idea what. And so, you know, if there had been something like this, I probably wouldn't have attended it because I was a bronze Anzac hero and you're meant to fix that stuff yourself. You, know, you don't need shrinks or psychs or whatever it may be to sort your problems out. All you have to do is sort it out yourself, just get a grip of yourself and get on with life. Um, my brain didn't react that way and allow me to do that. It sort of hung on. At the same time, and this is, I'll shut up after this, at the same time my brain is my greatest ally. It could destroy me. For all the things that I've seen, and I've seen more blood and guts than I ever want anyone else to see, for all those things that I have seen, and I know I've seen them because I was there, but I have no recollection of anything under about a metre above the ground. And this is astounding. I could right now put myself in a, in a position in, in Vietnam, pull out one of those clips and look at the view and know that there's 20 bodies in front of me but I, my mind never takes me there. And even 
and, and I talked about this with a psychiatrist because I didn't believe it myself. My first big action, walking along, and, and there had to be blood. I mean, there were people blowing up all over the joint. There had to be blood. I never saw it. I never saw red blood. I'd see grey puddles. They were always grey. But my brain allowed me to cope with what I needed to do because you know, I couldn't afford not to cope. And so, yeah, it's a, and I, I said to uh, uh, that shrink that I mentioned, I said, how does this happen? He said, be thankful. Be thankful. You've got a good brain that's looking after you. So I would suggest that you know, if you've got a brain that sort of doesn't let you go somewhere, don't go there. Mm. John, I'm mindful we've had you on for an hour now. No, I'm okay. And uh, was there another another question before we go to a break, Michael? Yeah. John, thanks for sharing. Can you speak up to the back? Uh, thank, thank you so much for sharing. Uh, I'm really interested how you went from being isolated and being alone to reconnecting with society, forming new friends. Um, I didn't. Yeah, yeah. I didn't form new friends. I had a couple of friends from Duntroon and my wife tells me that the reason they're still my friends, one lives in Perth and the other lives in Adelaide. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I went to work. So from the farm and whatever, I, I didn't just slash grass and uh, chop down trees. Every morning I go to work and this is fascinating because I put on my work facade. Now I heard someone talking about a facade in a different sense. Uh, last night, I think it was, how you become a soldier, you put on your uniform, become a soldier, you go to work, all that stuff, your marriage, your kids, are, you know, smoking dope and all that sort of thing, it's all back there. You come to the work and you're a soldier and you put on your soldier's facade. And by putting that on, it sort of settles you down to just focusing on that for the moment, for that day, and then you go home and it all starts again. So what I did is I had a business facade, and I say with, with no modesty, I, I was very successful. And it was going into organisations and sorting out their, their complex issues. The thing that I did is that when in doing that, I didn't have to give anything of myself. I could look at organisations, I could talk to people, I could do it. It was all out there. I would write a report and hand that in and walk away and pick up a cheque and all was well. That was my business facade. In going home, I had to strip that off because I've got children running around and you know they're wanting to do things and so on. I was talking to someone else the other day saying what I did at home is I built a structure. I needed structure. And that structure came through being controlling. And so had all these rules, you know, sort of you can do this, you can do, you can't do this, you can't do that. And by being controlling, I kept it in place. But as the kids grew up and started being, well, what you'd call rebellious, but you know, just independent, and I was seeing I was losing it all. And so I'd try harder to bring it back until one day I realised I'd lost it, and that I'd better do something. I was coming back from overseas in a plane. And I wrote a letter to four of my, I only had four kids then, four of my children, apologising for being a bad father, mm. which I was. And that was the start of it. Mm. 
by recognizing that I had stuffed up and done something badly and apologizing to them. And my son, who was the helicopter pilot, his wife told me when he opened the letter, he sat on the steps and cried for at least a couple of hours because it lasted because I explained why I was such a terrible father. And again, I wasn't punitive. I was controlling and and difficult and whatever, and away a lot. I used to, I had a job that took me away, which is how I designed it. And I was pleased I did that because he died in a, in a crash two days later. And I had got that message to him in time. And I felt good about that, that he died knowing I loved him, as opposed to, and then so when someone mentions legacy, I think of him, pull off the strip, chop a pilot, bit of a rogue, uh, got his helmet on. Um, when he died, I, I buried him at the property where he uh, was staying, which was uh, where Banjo Patterson wrote Waltzing Matilda. And Banjo Patterson had been courting the McPherson daughter and the McPhersons owned the property. And the two McPherson brothers are buried there along with my son, Sean. And so he's in the right spot. And so when there's a sunset or a sunrise, that's where he's way out west. He's out the other side of uh, Winton. And so that's where the sun sinks. Whenever I see a sunset, he's with me. I have a yarn to him. I tell him he's a terrible pilot. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm really cranky with him. Invariably, I tell him how cranky I am with him. And uh, I just don't want him to forget. He's put a lot of people out. But yeah, I look forward to seeing him one day, maybe. Who knows? So, that's how it works for me. Thanks. Does that answer your question or not? Yes, thank you. So, what, what was the original question? It's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's how, how, how you went from being isolated yeah, yourself. Yeah, going to work. To, to, to reconnecting and coming alive and feeling part of the community again. It really goes back to this, how do I want to be... How, how do I remember? My legacy, but you know, just being here with you now, I'm not going to do a, a, an opera and say, you know, so how did I go? <laughs> but being here with you now, I want to leave with you having a good impression. If you don't have a good impression, that's okay. But I'm giving back to the community that has encompassed me for, for 80 years and looks after me. And the, the acts of kindness that happened, that, that uh, quilt thing the other day, talk about random acts of kindness, a person that I've never heard of, you know, and gives me this beautiful quilt and says thanks. And I think, where the hell is this coming from? Yeah, I, I wouldn't do that. Yeah, that's, that's more generous than I could be. I think the only other random act of kindness I had like that was in Barcelona a couple of years ago and getting out of a taxi with my suitcase. And this elderly gentleman came along and said, let me, you know, in English, he'd obviously picked up that I was, he probably thought I was American, in English, let me help you with that. And I said, no, 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 it's okay, thanks. He said, I insist. So he patted me on the back and lifted it up and put it on the footpath. I said, thanks very much. I said, what a lovely thing to do. When I got into the hotel and reached for my wallet, 
All my credit cards, my cash, the whole lot. He got the lot. I thought, that guy was good. He was good. <laughs> so that was supposed to be a random act of kindness, but not quite. Okay. I, so, think, I think we yeah. probably need to have a break there. I think, John, you gave us two really good questions. Part of your legacy to us is these questions that we need to answer. What legacy do we want to leave? How do I want to be remembered? So, uh, mm. you, you know, like you've just, <laughs> like you're blowing us away. Thank you so much. And That's uh, probably and the most important question in my life now. Yeah. And I'm starting with my wife. Yeah. I've changed my behaviour, so I want her to miss me when I've gone rather than saying, thank God for that. <laughs> <laughs> what a man of humour. Folks, can you put together your hands? <laughs> If anyone wants to have a private chat with me, I'm always more than happy to do that about things. You know, I really have been through the mill, and uh, I'll leave it there. <laughs> Thanks, Michael. Thank you for listening to our podcast. We trust it's been valuable. If you've got any comments or questions, feel free to reach out to us at support at veteranscare.com.au. And we do encourage you to share this podcast with anyone you feel really needs to hear it, and keep a lookout for our next episode. Thank you.